Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of the Architects Purpose podcast. And this episode is all about architecture's odd couple, Frank Lloyd Wright and Philip Johnson. They both had quite long and distinguished careers, and and they both have a pretty shocking similarity between them. But on the surface, they're absolutely in contrast. So this episode is way more about the impact on the realm of construction and architecture and building and design that it's how much impact that one person can really have and what strategies they go about to truly have a long and continually reviving career. So I hope everyone enjoys. This was uh, quite a fun conversation. This week is all about the two movers of the modern movement. I, I don't think there's any other argument with yeah, Frank and Philip Johnson. There are, are others that, that are obviously important and wildly so, but these two really contended with each other and this was the second time I've read this book and all throughout school and the profession, it's it, it's a, like Philip Johnson is the butt of every joke, you know. Um, it's like just the both hate on someone to hate on, and architecturally pretty rightfully so. But looking at it from more of a societal and a, a holistic standpoint, Philip Johnson, like his purpose in life was to have that influence. And he got that. So there were two very important questions that I asked my students. Um, so we had three classes over this. And I think two of the most profound issues or questions that we discussed or addressed was what were the things that were so similar between the two? Mm. I'll see if you can, I'll, I'll see what your answer is and I'll give you mine. And I'll tell you what my classes was. This actually catches me on the spot because I'm so I, I it's so like there's so much contrast, and I think one thing from a more abstract standpoint is they both knew who they were as individuals and they followed through with that. I mean, yeah, we can crush on Philip Johnson for being an imitator and a hack, which, I mean, is pretty true, but <clears throat> he knew that's all he could do. He had a lot of quotes about, like, I know I am not Mies or Frank Floyd Pride or Corb or any of these, so I have to copy. And where Frank Floyd Pride had an extreme amount of to just originality for Philip Johnson really cited all of his sources on everything he copied throughout his entire 
career, but well, he did that to legitimize himself. Um, yeah, so, you know. Uh, and, and so, what else would you say to that? In in, well, I wouldn't quite say he only did it to legitimize himself. If we're only viewing him through the the lens of needing accolades from others, then yeah, that can for sure be a part of the equation. But it was actually Frank Lloyd Wright who pushed him. Hey, do you want to be a critic or do you want to be a practicing art? Uh, uh, architect you can't be both and i think he also did it for the enjoyment also because when you're a critic you're sitting on the sidelines and you know you're sitting on the sidelines so that ego trip also of like hey i'm i i know i'm actually not them even though i brought all of them together i am taught held at that same architectural and in that intellectual esteem. Sorry, I'm trying to adjust my camera a bit. It's all good. Um, because um, I need to light my cigar a little bit better. Yeah. There's method to my madness. Um, uh, so the ways in which they are similar, uh, it's clearly through the notion that they were able to reinvent themselves over the course of their careers. Mm, All right. Cool. Sorry. There we go. Um, so they were able to reinvent themselves over their, their careers. So if you look at Frank Lloyd Wright, I mean, one of the statements in the book that I found to be extremely insightful was the fact that if you take the beginning, middle, and end of Frank Lloyd Wright's career, the book very clearly states that it really could have been, the buildings that he designed in those eras could have been designed by three different architects. Yeah. Which is pretty amazing that at, you know, 80 some odd years old, at the, you know, at the twilight of his career, First of all, he did his most profound work. Yeah, it was not even quite the tw twilight. It was um, pretty on that uptick. And then it's like, well, you can't live forever. But clearly was something that could have been done by three different architects. And so he proved himself like Madonna, able to reinvent himself not for the public's sake, but for his own sake, for the sake of creativity, for the sake of um, pushing himself to excel. Yeah. And Johnson was an architectural chameleon. Um, and, and so, you know, we talked a lot about that. We talked about, okay, well, who's Rourke and who's Keating in, in all of this? And, you know, clearly the students, you know, obviously fell on the side of Rourke as, as, as Frank Lloyd Wright and Johnson as Keating because, Johnson really was subjugating himself to the opinions of the masses as he reinvented himself. But Frank Lloyd Wright did it in a way that was pure, that was um, inventive, that was uh, insightful uh, in a way that we've rarely seen, um, in, in certainly um, uh, in, in, in architecture in, in a very unique way. But he did clearly reinvent himself uh, in three very distinct phases. So that is a similarity between the two of them that you can't deny. 
Yeah, in that they did constantly change. It was also interesting to really see how all over the map Johnson was on, especially in a lot of times reverting to classicism as the pinnacle. Um, excuse me. Um, but between the two, what is that intent and also what is the follow through? I mean, especially in the physical built work, you can tell that Johnson is trying to do what Mies and Corb and others are doing. First, Franklin Wright, he's really trying to push the creativity and the intellect, and it's both through their admitted statements, but also through the, their work. I mean, we don't study any Philip Johnson buildings. Like, yeah, the, the glass house is, is in the textbooks, but we turn to the next page and we look at the Farnsworth house because technically it was just before because he like, it was his house, so he just funded it himself and just built it versus Beast really had a client to contend with so the other big issue that we we discussed and and debated and and, and uh, you know still comes up in in our discussions after i mean with uh uh you know the finishing up the fountainhead and and even looking at gropius uh is the idea that the role of the architectural critic in society it didn't really exist until Philip Johnson came on on the scene. Um, they had not had a curator of architecture um, until, you know, his 1932 show of uh, modern architecture, um, you know, the, in, in the international style. That was a that was a seminal pivotal moment in the careers of, of many European architects. Uh, stumbling on the, the scene in American architecture. And it was also a pivotal moment for Frank Lloyd Wright, who saw that um, in some ways, perhaps he was way behind uh, and he was a bit out of touch. And yet, you know, through the Mesa house that he contributed to that show, um, did things that he had never done before. So he even reinvented himself for that event. Um, and we talked a lot about that. We talked a lot about the fact that when he first heard about the show, he sent two crates of, of materials and he thought it was going to be a show all about him. And, <laughs> you know, what a, what an amazing ego this guy had. It was just, oh, yeah, you're going to curate a show on architecture? Well, here's all of my stuff. And Johnson's like, no, 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 you're, you're just one contributor among 20. And, um, and, you know, when he found out about it, he's like, fuck this, I'm, you know, I don't, I don't even want to send you any of my stuff. And, and, you know, it, it, it took intervention by others to even compel him to submit the drawings that he did. And the drawings that he did weren't of a project that he had actually completed. It was an imaginary project. Mm -hmm. uh, but yet it, it encapsulated so many of the ideals that all of the other international architects were, were contributing of, you know, big expanses of, of glass and overhangs and things that he had not ever done before. Um, 
And so you could see, you could almost see the, the wheels turning in his mind saying, you know, I've got to, I have to contribute in a way that is uh, competitive with these other people who are developing these ideas beyond what I've thought about. Um, and, you know, he, he did a brilliant job at it. Uh, and, and we don't talk very much about Frank Lloyd Wright. It's almost, um, you know, there's so much worship to Corbusier. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I told my students that when I was um, an undergrad, there was a lot of discussion about Mies. There was some discussion about, um, uh, about Frank Lloyd Wright. And in graduate school, um, in, in the postgraduate work, it was all about it was all about Corb, and mm -hmm. um, and and Frank Lloyd Wright was almost a footnote uh, to all of that, and it it seemed like, and and part of it was because the East Coast schools, um, the Cornell School of, of Thought about architecture and design, which really started at the University of Texas, migrated up to Cornell, um, uh, was all about the, the um, intellectual thought with regard to architecture. And Frank Lloyd Wright was uh, a producer of work. He was not a writer about work. He was not a theorist about work or a theorist about architecture. He was, uh, he, you know, he produced work and he, um, he, he deigned to even write about a lot of his work. Um, and yet Corbusier at 25, you know, wrote a treatise about architecture that, rivals, um, you know, in, in some people's opinions, that of uh, Alberti, that of um, uh, Loger, you know, and, and, you know, even even that of uh, Vitruvius, that if you if you mark in time those great treatises of architecture, you talk about uh, De Architectura, you talk about um, the 10 books of architecture, um, you talk about Loger, and then you talk about um, talk about core um, you know the architecture of tomorrow so uh, in, in framing it in, in, in those terms Frank Lloyd Wright is, is truly a footnote in all of that but he but he wasn't and I think people um, I think people in architecture schools they forget how much impact he had on society um, and and perhaps in his early years, yes, he was doing a lot of residential architecture in Oak, um, in Oak, is it Oak, Oak, not Oak, Park. Cliff, Oak, Oak Park, um, outside of Chicago, um, you know, brilliant, wonderful residences, but he hadn't contributed to public buildings very much. Um, and, you know, I really like how he evolved during the course of this book into uh, truly an architectural powerhouse. He was also one that was more of the artist and the sculptor than the hardcore, rational, intellectual type. And in that, you're going to get some follies. You're going to get some things that, yeah, that, that wall could have been thinner or X, Y, Z. Um, and so in school, the very first semester it is a drawing class, and we are doing a 
plan section elevation overlay and a perspective in a very artistic way it's not like the i mean it's supposed to be the scale but it's not like it's a very very clean um one plan drawing and um someone did fall in water and the only comment the professor really had was don't do fall in water wow right is overblown or overplayed and that is the mantra and yeah part of it is because of the writings because i mean as a professor for you and also a student like i how many of the, the readings are by other architects? I mean, that's almost like exclusively what the handouts are. You know, it's small articles or or like smaller treatises types or um, whatnot. And I do feel that Franklin Wright was thinking in spatial terms, but as far as that modernist ideal of really designing through structure and materials, he... I didn't feel reveal the structure as much. He was for almost the opposite, like kind of hiding it because especially falling water, it's like, how is it even standing? And it's also cracking, but um, it's still that it's a lot more hidden versus say, if these executed the same sort of plan, you would have had gigantic exposed eye beams on and on, you know, versus the more organic type feel that Prince would quite wanted and a building being of the earth and um, versus being extremely luxurious. And yeah, in school, I don't recall once looking at a Frank Lloyd Wright precedent. So, so I would postulate this that uh -huh. Mies could not have done the Barcelona Pavilion if the Roby House hadn't been built. From a plan? From a planning perspective, because what Frank Lloyd Wright was doing was the hearth was the center and the yeah. rooms were arranged around it um, in a, a spatial manner. And they, it reached out into the landscape uh, in the same way that the Barcelona Pavilion its walls reach beyond its roof and captures the out, outdoor areas uh, in, in, in a very writing way. I mean, you have to imagine or, or realize that Mies was a huge, obviously, he was a huge fan of Frank Lloyd Wright, and the Wasmuth uh, portfolio was revered. I mean, it was, it, it was probably unknown in, in the United States, but it was revered in, in Europe because it had, it had matriculated out to, you know, Germany and France and England and all the things that were happening with, uh, you know, this, this, you know, strange new thing about modern architecture. Uh, they were looking at what Frank Lloyd Wright had started with and they were building upon it. And so I would strongly argue uh, that without Frank Lloyd Wright, Mies wouldn't have been successful. He couldn't have done the Barcelona Pavilion. Because also th that timing is crucial as well, because Frank Lloyd Wright being, what, 30, 40 years, everyone's senior, <clears throat> he grew up in that very masonry, load-bearing wall condition because... Still, still, really, kind of 
wasn't out there. And um, and so he, he instead kept the load bearing wall as the asset, and then it, it freed up so much interior space based on the volumes and the base he set up. And in that, then a long comes Casa Domino, and then boom, you can actually blow out the wall. And then so what's that spatial It's concept? Mason now. Mason Domino. Damn. Damn. Close. Mason Mason Citron, Mason Domino. Mason Domino. Oh, cool. Um, appreciate the correction. Um, no, no, I mean, it's crucial to get stuff correct, you know. Um, but so, so again, look at, look at what Nice did. Um, Frank Lloyd Wright designed everything about his buildings. He designed the furniture. I mean, look at what he did at, um, the, you know, the, the Johnson Wax uh, factory. You know, he, he designed all the furniture for it. Look at what he did at the Larkin building. He designed all the furniture for it. And so all of this was, well, the Larkin building was earlier. And so that was part of, it wasn't part of the Wasma portfolio, but, um, you know, in, in the houses that he did, he, he still designed, you know, many of the furniture pieces. Do you not think that Nice saw that and said, dude, I can do this as well. I mean, I cannot just stop at buildings, but I can design furniture as well. And, and Mies really wasn't, you know, he was part of the Bauhaus tradition, you know, because he took over as the director of the Bauhaus in the latter years of, of, of it. And, and all of Gropius, which we'll talk about in our, in our next um, session, uh, mm-hmm. all of the, the, the teachings of the, that school was, you know, designing a complete uh, and a, a complete environment that included furniture and fabrics and uh, wall coverings and carpets and in uh, the buildings themselves, obviously. And so Mies bought into that, but I, I truly believe that his viewing of Frank Lloyd Wright's work not only in Berlin, but also when he came to the United States, had a huge impact on his ability to design an environment that included furniture. Because also not many architects were doing the building with the interiors completed. I mean, they might spec some furniture, you know, but that's different than building it in or having it built specifically for this room, this house, what have you. Um, so one question is, so you look at plans and um, especially Frank Lloyd Wright to um, Corb and Beast and the rationality and the rigidity of it. Um, so What's your take or feel on a floor plan being prescriptive and one way to the point of even building in every piece to the ground or wall so you can't move it? Cause, or on the flip side, have it so the furniture can be moved at the need or not even just furniture, but the interiors. Because I even remember as a kid, a 
fun thing to do is to pre-arrange the room, you know, or sh should there be one way the room That's because your mother I, likes to move furniture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, and being praised on that is like, okay, the couch isn't in the same place it was. So, in, in, so like, intellectually speaking, I mean, for instance, look at the glass house or, or let's actually look at Farnsworth. Those rooms aren't moving, you know. They're there. No, but think about what, so what did Phil Johnson do? He, he bought all Mies furniture and he, he put it on um, a area rug. What did he call it? Do you remember? He called it the raft. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so all of the furniture sat in, 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 and so all the houses that had been done before that, they had rooms, they had walls that, that shaped space. But when he did the glass house, the furniture actually created a room. It created, it, it shaped space. And that was the really the first time something like that was done. So like a Mondrian painting that, you know, captured different spatial elements within the, the very strict grid. Johnson did that with the furniture, you know, that was provided by Mies, you know, designed by Mies, but he used it in a way that was a very unique thing. So, you know, Johnson was, you know, very inventive about, uh, I mean, I know we bash him and we, we, we call him, um, you know, a hack and, and, and a copier, but his contribution to architecture in, in design was significant, not just in his relationships and how many people he mentored. And I, I truly believe that was his largest contribution. I mean, if you read the other book that I, I struck off the reading list, um, uh, which was, you know, The Man in the Glass House, just because there was so much duplication between this book and that book, and, 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 and I would encourage anybody listening to this that they should read both because it's, it's a fantastic biography. Um, and there's another one that I, re I read as well. And I'm trying to remember the author's name, but, uh, you know, I've read a couple of biographies on, on, on Johnson, just Johnson himself. His biggest contribution was his mentorship of, and his ability as a critic to see the talent of other young architects. The fact that he held, um, court, um, in, you know, in the, the sequence building, in, in the restaurant that he designed, um, uh, you know, for the Ritz that, um, you know, cost like a shit ton of money. Yeah. But you know, he had a reserved table there for what, 30 some odd years. And, you know, he's sitting there and hanging out with Robert A.M. Stern and Michael Graves and they come up, you know, in, through their dialogue, they come up with the Chippendale top for the AT&T building. I mean, holy crap. Is that know? a good thing, though? I don't know if that's the best anecdote. <laughs> like, like the most hated building of the most hated on architects. I mean, but also on the flip side... It, it, so if you're Ellsworth Tooley, you go, the public loves it. Um, and, you know, it's a brilliant building. Did um, they? Yeah, the, the public the public loved it. Uh, yeah. All architects hated it because it was pastiche. It was yeah. it was a it was a cartoon of architecture, 
And, uh, and, and Johnson celebrated the fact that he created a cartoon of architecture because he wanted to be, you know, part of it is he wanted to be in the limelight, which he was, but part of it was that he had influence on how architecture was created and, and, and performed and done, you know, certainly during, you know, the, the early eighties through the, the early nineties, you know, for a decade there, there wasn't any, any architect that didn't have, and wasn't influenced by Philip Johnson. Um, and, you know, many of them went on to, you know, do, you know, really, really great work. Um, you know, you have, um, you know, you can like or hate Robert A.M. Stern, but, um, you know, he's written prolifically about architecture and influenced uh, architecture in, in, in an amazing way. Um, you know, I'm not a, a big fan of his architecture or, or, or of his work, but I'm a big fan of how much he's influenced work. Uh, and, uh, you know, he put out a book recently, um, it's, uh, uh, it's called Pedagogy in Place, and it's all about placemaking, and it's all about the, you know, the creation of, of place um, in, uh, in an educational uh, uh, context. And, you know, you can't deny that even Stern has had, you know, an amazing influence. You may, you may be a lover or hater of his architecture, but uh, as an influencer from a uh, pedagogical or teaching or methodological point of view, uh, you know, he's, he's really affected, you know, many of us uh, in, in, in the practice that we, we are currently in. So uh, in, in Michael Graves, um, you know, having worked with him um, uh, in the early 80s, uh, or, or actually in the late 80s, um, you know, one of the things that I took away from my work experience with him was the idea of using precedence. Um, I didn't even, as an undergrad, um, I didn't even know really what a precedent was. Really? And that, um, you know, using other buildings to help inform your ideas about the building that you're designing, uh, it was not something that was, that was taught um, uh, in the undergraduate curriculum. Uh, it, was, it was more of a gut feel. Um, and so I like to say that, you know, my educational experience was West Coast for undergrad and East Coast for grad school. Um, yeah. You know, they didn't really teach you how to design in undergrad. Well, no, they taught you how to design in a different way. It was taught through, you know, experientially, um, you know, designing a building that you could experience or designing a building that had, you know, certain emotional uh, characteristics to it versus based on, uh, well, this is a reference to uh, the Roman baths or this is a reference to, um, you know, uh, something in the Beaux-Arts tradition, or this is a reference to something else. Yeah, I do think that those sorts of almost arbitrary preferences, it depends on how you do it, but the precedents I find way more useful are the ones around actual productivity, and that more comes from being informed 
from the plan and or section than whatever the form actually is of it. Because I don't know, especially with postmodernism, I have like a love-hate thing because some of the buildings are just so funky. I'm just like, it, I, I just can't help but laugh or smile at it, you know? Um, and in you, fact, you have to keep it in the context of what it was doing. So, no, and that's and what, I, what I've told my students is that modernism's failure was not the brilliance of Mies or Korb or Gropius or any one of the other really great modern architects, early modern architects. It was the failure in the um, supplanters and secondhanders and, and copiers of that work who were not as ingenious uh, as, as those originators. And so they didn't understand the work that they truly didn't understand Mies. They truly didn't understand Corb. They were just copying forms. And in that, they created these uh, buildings that had no human scale, no sensibility, no no. Um, uh, uh, intuitive wayfinding, no ability to, you know, even know where the entrance of the building was, um, uh, and, and they created these these banal buildings uh, in trying to copy something that you know was was difficult to, re to replicate. So you take the Seagram's building as an example. You know, uh, an amazing structure for its time. And if you, you know, if you walk along Park Avenue, it, it's the only building that's set back from the street edge. And, you know, you're walking along and all of a sudden there's relief in the city, which is desperately needed in a place like New York. And the building sets back and creates a park or park like setting. There's two fountains that are out there that are totally occupied all the time. Um, and it's this, you know, shining beacon of, of you know, beautiful simplicity. And, you know, even, even SOM, you know, when, when they, they copied it, they didn't quite do it the same kind of justice uh, that Mies did. It didn't have the same kind of finesse and elegance to it uh, that the Seagram's building has. And so if SOM couldn't get it right, I mean, Joe Schmo, architect over here, certainly didn't get it right. And that, was that mistake was repeated over and over and over again. So postmodernism was a reaction to that. It was, we need to try to bring back some of the, the uh, intrigue and elegance and, um, and qualities that draw people into buildings and, and, and visual references uh, to past building shapes and forms that people can recognize and understand and, uh, and operate in. Um, and, you know, I, I told them that, um, you know, when Colin Rowe wrote his, so Colin Rowe wrote the, um, uh, the introduction to Michael Gray's first monograph, and it's called A Case for Figurative Architecture. And he lays out in, in, in a beautiful way uh, the terms of postmodern architecture. Uh, and, you know, every architectural student should read that essay and under, understand it certainly in its context. Now, I'm not certainly advocating that we go back to that, but it, uh, you know, for somebody who was committed to doing white architecture, which Graves was from the beginning, he was one of the New York Five, 
um, he, you know, he, he's the, the only one who really migrated away from that in a very distinct way because he wanted to bring back into uh, the, the human psyche this notion of figurative architecture and how profoundly it can influence your ability to perceive and understand buildings. Um, and, and so I, I, you know, I, I pulled back and I said, okay, well, who can name the New York Five? You know, do you guys even know who the New York Five are? <laughs> of course, I had to walk them through that. And then, um, you know, two or three classes later, I'm like, okay, we talked about the New York Five when we were talking about Gropius. Um, you know, we mm -hmm. went back to the New York, okay, do you guys remember who the New York Five were? And, um, you know, for the most part, they got most of them, but, you know, it's only five names. And, they, and I said, listen, if you don't get anything from this class, you should remember who the New York Five are, and you should know what their architecture stands for. Um, and, and because that is, again, another seminal moment in understanding precedent, understanding architectural history, understanding where you are in the, in, uh, you know, along the, the spectrum of, of architecture, uh, along the pantheon of, you know, these architectural greats. Because it seems also that, especially with the postmodernists, they are just flat out reacting. Because I mean, almost all of the architectural movements are a reaction to something, whether it being technology or war or what have you. But the realm of architecture and construction is churning to such a degree that we hadn't quite seen before. And then these different groups are then studying it and in that questioning it, because I don't think it, it was just outright bashing. It was more like experimentation. Um, so yeah, it, at the same time, you had, you know, you had, you know, innovators like, you know, uh, Chris Alexander on the West Coast, uh, who was, you know, preaching, you know, the complexity of all of, all of these interstitial spaces between buildings and, and you know, pooch outs and, 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 and um, you know, uh, alleyways and, 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 you know, these, these different areas that, you know, are shaped by the imperfections of architecture. Um, so you had that contrast to what, with what was happening in the postmodernist um, ideology on the on the East Coast, and you know the two actually, you know, worked kind of hand in hand to create a, a new way of thinking about architecture. But you're right; um, each architectural era is a reaction to the previous one. You have, you know, deconstructivism reacting against postmodernism, um, and uh, and you have, you know, new modernism uh, reacting against, you know, the, um, you know, what they say is the arbitrariness of, of all the curvilinear forms and, um, and uh, you know, parametric forms that are coming out of, of uh, the deconstructiveness movement. Uh, and so there's still, even today, um, a, not only a dialogue, but a, but a contrast between what I would classify as new modernism, you know, versus, 
more of a, a parametric deconstructivist Zaha Hadid, uh, big architecture, you know, kind of approach. And it seems just, just we're, we're not really off topic here, but <laughs> no, Sorry. no, but I mean, it all plays on because it's all I fun thing throughout the book is the the evolution and the change of the architectural uh, industry and ideology, theology, whatever. And these two, yeah, they play a big role, but it's not like these two are 75%. These two are a small percentage of everyone else involved. They just were the forefront, most likely the most popular and they both lived and practiced and were influential for a long time. Um, and I love the fact that the, the book sets up the contrast between what was happening at the Guggenheim and what was happening at the Seagram's building. Yeah. It, it's so wonderful to see the sculptural aspects um, that um, Frank Lloyd Wright was, was, was doing with the, with the Guggenheim and the, and the pure rationality that was happening with the Seagram's building. Um, and, and they were being built literally at the same time. Uh, and, you know, it's just, I, I, I love that, you know, the yin and the yang of that, the, the contrast between the two is wonderful. Because they would b both be in the history books as modernism, but they are wildly different and I really do appreciate Bright's looking at it through the lens of organic architecture and trying to have the space rise and then everything else sort of um, uh, responds to that. So um, I found this... Uh, definition in the book of organic architecture and it, it says on um, an architecture that develops from within outward harmony with the with the condition of its being as just as just as distinguished from one that is applied from without so i'm gonna try that again um <laughs> Take but, your time. yeah in architecture that develops from within outward harmony with the condition of being distinguished from one that is applied from without so that's like a bunch of fancy words which saying the soul the soul of the design starts within starts with a space versus the outward formal appearance that it actually ends up being and that's absolutely true i mean again if you look at the barcelona pavilion it's all about the the inward facing out it's all about the inward capturing the outside uh which is very indicative of all of Frank Lloyd Wright's buildings, um, you know, even 
uh, well, I, I guess with the notable exception of the Larkin building, because that was a very inward focused uh, structure and it was all about, you know, the, the five story volume and, you know, the skylights and, and, and that space and, and, you know, the Johnson, you know, wax uh, factory and, and headquarters. Um, it wasn't about kind of reaching out into the landscape, but certainly all of the earlier work of Frank Lloyd Wright did that. But when you look at um, the Guggenheim, it was all about the inward space. It was all about the spiral. It, and, you know, the thing that I admire most about the Guggenheim was um, almost all of our architecture with, with probably... I guess the notable exceptions of, of some of the spaces that Rem Coolhouse does and certainly some of the spaces that, you know, Zaha Hadid has done is that it, um, you know, buildings were thought of as a series of, of horizontal planes, you know, stories that you occupied. And I think if Frank Lloyd Wright had not done the Guggenheim, that Zaha Hadid could not have done the architecture that she had done uh, because for the first time, there was no horizontal plane anymore. It was just, a, it was a continuous spiral. And it did away with, you know, these, these flat plates of things that you occupied. Uh, and it was just, it, you know, it was a corkscrew. It was a brilliant design. It was so inventive, so far ahead of its time. And, you know, nobody could ever have envisioned a project like that, except for a mind genius like Frank Lloyd Wright. And truly, given that gift of the building, so to parallel it some to the Fountainhead, in creating it and especially comparing Franklin Wright to Rourke, I always had the sense of, ah, oh, Franklin Lloyd Wright did not get his wine and building, his amazing commission that he can do whatever he wants, and a building that rises to the sky and to be fair he did not get a gigantic tower commission that he he I, I think his tallest is what 23 stories the price tower um but now that I'm thinking and better getting on it more it seems that the Guggenheim was his finding from especially his space absolutely he took something that you know you had an entire city that was all vertically oriented all of a sudden he there's a building that's horizontally oriented in New York City. And it was a smaller building, but it was so profound. And, I mean, I... I, in school, that is one that it's not as if it's a precedent, but the Guggenheim is definitely on everyone's mind, and they know it's out there. And I mean, it's almost so figural, but it's really spatial. And I mean, at times, like it's both for sure. Um, <clears throat> but it seems that with the overall spatial concept he was pushing that a lot more than the structure whereas these seagrams it seemed that was a lot of 
finding the space and the structure and the materials and changing what New York is as well and pushing against that. I mean, I think New York would be absolutely tremendous if it had a ton of small plazas, but it doesn't. It it has like some smaller parks and those are tremendous, but as far as classical plaza, plaza, anything, it, it just, that intimate space doesn't exist in the concrete jungle. Well, it does. I mean, one of my favorite spaces in the entire city as much is, as Paley, is, is Paley Park. Mm, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it has a waterfall on one side. Um, it, I, I probably should have memorized its dimensions by, by now, but it, I think it's only about 60 feet deep and about 100 feet long. Uh, it's this very intimate space that, uh, you know, you can, that, that's approachable, that is two steps up from the, the, the sidewalk of New York. And so you have to, you know, rise up to, you know, go into the space. Uh, but it's this, it's this beautiful, intimate place of refuge among the concrete jungle that exists in New York. Um, and, you know, the thing about the Guggenheim, it, it, there isn't a plaza. There isn't a space outside of it. Uh, the space is actually on the inside. You go into it to experience uh, that respite from the city, um, you know, the, the density that, it, that exists around you. And you don't, you don't get the same, you know, when you go into the Seagram's building, yeah, I mean, it's a two-story entry lobby and it's, you know, it's beautiful, it's, it's well-crafted and there is a plaza out in front, but in entering the building, you don't have the same uh, kind of, you know, you have a very different kind of experience uh, as to walking into uh, the Guggenheim and, and that space on in the, in the center, uh, that void that he created, that inverted um, spiral is um, is that is that place of refuge is is that respite from the city. And it, it, it's it's interesting how Frank Little right of pushing back against what is classically New York, he still kept the building pretty much to the perimeter as much as he could, and allow in allowing for that space, but. I mean, he could have pushed the back zone because what that void provides is a space for people to gather and then look upon the building. I mean, there's way more people in plazas than actually in the church or in whatever the main building is. And allowing for that void. But also, you could, you could argue... The void on the inside, he doesn't really need, need it outside because the point is to come inside versus the right. secret. It is private, you know, and, and they're giving that public space. So I will give it to you that there are, and especially today, a lot of consideration for these smaller minor parks, even outside of, um, um, can, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, Ben Coley's tower in New York, the Pencil Tower. Um, they have a public space just adjacent to it. It's private, but it's public. You know, I mean, it's privately funded, but it's 
it's way more on the architect in that situation to say, no, this isn't a parking lot or, or this isn't storage or maintenance or services or whatever. This is public. And I, I feel, especially t today, they're understanding and keeping that need back too. So it was funny. Um, the floor is marble fine or travertine or some expensive um the floor of the driveway to the is it a hotel and private residence or just private residences i think, I think it's, it's just private residences so the driveway up to it is just this beautiful floor material and the plaza is as nice, but if, if you step one foot, the uh, three security guys come out and say, hey, move away. <laughs> and I mean, like that I'm speaking from experience, but coming back to that space given and that consideration of for what the space is, that's at an essence of what the architect does. I mean, there's plenty of things. It's a almost never-ending list of things that we are, are responsible for, but in the intellectual category, yeah, deconstruction is important, but if the space doesn't taught and form everything else, it's just copying and form-chasing, it seems. So one of the other things that I really enjoyed about the book was Johnson's turnaround of his uh, almost abhorrence to Frank Lloyd Wright to his genuine respect for him at the end, you know, at the end of his life, um, and seeing you know how much effect. I mean, even even the sighting of uh, his his own glass house was a very Frank Lloyd Wrightian approach, right? He put it on, you know, on the edge uh, of a hill to overlook a ravine. Um, and in Frank Lloyd Wright's mantra was, you know, when I come into a site, I want to build on the most difficult part. Um, and, and 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 so, you know, Johnson relinquished, you know, his his own personal desires for, you know, something that he found to be, you know, true and pure about Frank Lloyd Wright's approach to the siding of a building and its positioning. Um, uh, you know, the fact that he you know, developed this, you know, great respect for what he originally called the greatest American architect of the 19th century, or the greatest architect of the 19th century, uh, to something that is much more profound uh, it, you know, you know, truly, a, um, Frank Lloyd Wright is the, you know, America's greatest living architect. And, um, and even in, in his own, uh, you know, toward the end of his life, you know, referring to the fact that, you know, people will study and, and think about Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, for much longer than they'll think of me, um, in the architecture that I've done, um, you know, uh, because, Frank Lloyd Wright was was truly that inventive spirit, and um, 
uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, you know, Johnston was a great copier of other people's ideas and, and, and notions. I mean, even the glass house, uh, you know, I encourage my students to, to uh, cover up their drawings because, you know, he walked into to Mises' office and saw drawings of the Farnsworth house and, and decided that a glass house actually could be done. And he went and built it, you know, five years before the Farnsworth house was completed. But he, he wouldn't have done that if he hadn't seen the drawings on, on Mises' table. Um, and so I'm like, okay, well, you need to, like, cover up your ideas because somebody, somebody else is going to, you know, build it before you do, potentially. Um, but, you know, Johnson, again, his, his most admirable quality was his recognition of talent, his ability to mentor other people, um, his ability to hold court in, in bringing people on a regular basis. I mean, he ate there, you know, in that, in that restaurant, you know, every single day and met with important, influential architects, developers, contractors, uh, and, and through that had an influence on American architecture in a way that's truly unprecedented. Uh, and so the, the dialogue that we consistently have, or consistently have with my students is the, the role of the critic. Um, because I think Johnson was not influential as an architect, but he was certainly influential as an architectural critic. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, what role does that play in American society? And what role does that play today? And, and I constantly remind the class of what is the name of this, what's the name of this course? It is the architect and contemporary society. So how do we, how do we frame this argument? How do we frame this discussion in today's terms? We now have a whole plethora of academics uh, and architectural critics that are um, assumed to the the public realm because they are, you know, you have, you know, Adelise Huxtable, you have Herbert Mershomp, you have uh, even, you know, locally David Dillon when he was still alive, you know, they were huge and, and profound and influential architectural critics uh, that were subscribed to the general public because they wrote for a newspaper. Um, and, you know, without Johnson paving the way for that, that, the, you know, that industry of architectural critic wouldn't even, wouldn't even exist today. And it's, it seems also that as technology and media shifted, because I don't know, try and be a critic back in the, Renaissance, like you're talking while everyone else is doing, you know, it's like, hey, shut up, you know, just like go build something. Um, and whereas today, opinions of others are highly validated and often required. And I mean, it's like the, the media of today is 10,000 fold from even Johnson's time, and that was very very revolutionary of being able to get a message across the country quickly. Um, one thing I really enjoyed about the book and books written in this banner and of this time period when we really have a lot of 
record of them actually writing each other back and forth, and then they put that actual verbatim in the book, and and then so you get more of that feel of what's the tone because there's a lot of jabs back and forth. Well, mostly Franks would write towards Philip Johnson, but um, <laughs> but it it was interesting how Johnson's was such of the the status because he was very very wealthy. I mean, talk about hitting the jackpot like your dad is absolutely balling out of control. And then he gives you an aluminum company when uh, when it's super cheap, and then now it's being used everywhere. And then you end up richer than your father. <laughs> you, you can do whatever you want, and there's a lot of talk in this. <laughs> That's happening. So, like that freed him up to almost live life as like an like a classical aristocrat of wandering the fans and whatever tickles his fancy. You know. Well, he was a tastemaker, right? Um, and, and there's something you know. There's something very dangerous about that. Um, if you look at, if you compare that to the Fountainhead and Ellsworth Tui. Um, you know, his, his whole approach to tastemaking was to, um, you know, proclaim the banal as extraordinary. Now, that was not Johnson's approach, but Frank Lloyd Wright, having not written about his work, I would have, but he was extremely um, elucidating when he was on stage and and people marveled at the things that he said and he would carry on a conversation and talk about architecture for long periods of time where you know where people's mouths were agape and and uh, their jaws were dropped because of not only the uh, profanity that he he used but also uh, you know the insight that he provided. Uh, in talking about American architecture, talking about architecture in general, uh, it would be, you know, we have really nice, um, you know, writings by, uh, you know, I, I've got a couple of books. One is, uh, you know, you know, Khan's Conversations with Students. I have another uh, uh, nice book uh, on um, Ram Coolhouse's Conversations with Students. Uh, it would have been. You know, I'm hoping that someday, you know, maybe somebody will will uh, have uh, recorded, you know, these some of these uh, interviews and uh, or Frank Frank Lloyd Wright in in uh, you know a small book that talks about his discussions about architecture because uh, when you read about them in a book like this, it it almost leaves you wanting to say, well, what did he actually say on stage? You know. What were the words that he used? Because the discussion, you know, was was recorded as as profound and insightful and, and thoughtful and unique and um, you know and in some ways attacking you know this and that uh, and you know you just wanted to know what what, what he said. What what were his words? And like, what are those specifics? What's the rhetoric? The jargon the personality right exactly and, and a part of that i think has to do with the 
generational aspect as well um because recording things in such detail at least early on for him and i'm curious i haven't looked into him much but especially his apprentices at taliesin um i'm blanking on a few of the names of these standouts but i'm curious what they would have to say on working for him i mean i'm kind of um hot and cold on taliesin as and i think it was a great business exploit during the great depression when he couldn't get a ton of work to get students to pay him thousands of dollars to come to his property and and then spend half the time at best um working in as construction or farming or doing work of the land rather than actual architectural or i mean it, it was also in that kind of like a karate kid biagi thing also of hey you have to know an experience life it can't just explicitly be up here or something learned and it seems also that the great aspect of of uh taliesin is that he was able to do that mentorship in some way but like there's a reason there aren't a ton of copiers of Franklin Wright, and like th- there's a reason. Well, Dallas, the quotes. Well, well, Dallas, I mean, Dallas is actually re- replete with a number of copies of, or a number of students from Taliesin that built in that same mm-hmm. uh, prairie style. Um, and uh, I, I just know that about Dallas. I'm sure there are others in Chicago. You know, certainly there are right. in Phoenix. Um, but, um, you know, I think the difference there is that, uh, you know, Wright demanded, you know, absolute um, uh, adherence to, you know, his ideology, his forms, his focus, instead of, and so if you compare that, and we'll talk about this the next time when we talk about Gropius, um, you know, Franklin Wright demanded adherence to a singular philosophy, which was his, whereas Gropius, you know, um, uh, both at Bauhaus and also when he came to Harvard, uh, it was to encourage students to follow, you know, their own path under their own terms, which is uh, a pedagogy that still exists today in in most architecture schools. The professor is not there to mandate it should look like this or that with the exception of maybe McDonald and some others, but, um, but um, you know, I, I'm here to, uh, you know, as a professor, I'm here to share with you some ideas about uh, architecture and design and, and design philosophy and, and focus and, and, uh, and, but yet you have to discover your path yourself. And there's a, a clear distinction between me, between Gropius's pedagogy and in in, in what existed at Taliesin. Um, and again, that's something we can talk about the next time. So. Yeah, and it seems that especially um, in 
Pat, one topic would be what is Frank Lloyd Wright really mentoring or exploiting or using? He was totally exploiting. I mean, there's no question about it. I mean, uh, you know, the fact that he came up with uh, an ingenious business model. um, Yeah. So there's only other one architect that I know of that did that. And I I shared that with the students, and that's Paolo Soleri um, in in his, um, you know, designs in the desert where, you know, students had to pay him to come out there and help him, you know, construct uh, his ideas. And, um, you know, can you imagine today that happening? Uh, again, if you, if you frame this in the terms of the, the, the course description, which is the architect in contemporary society, that can exist today. You already have people like Stephen Hole who uh, brought on interns and wouldn't pay them. You know, they were non-paid interns, and he's, you know, facing, you know, massive, um, um, not retribution, but massive uh, uh, pushback by the architectural community for exploiting, you know, people, uh, exploiting students, exploiting, you know, people in a way that just isn't right. It just isn't correct. It, it isn't the uh, the proper thing to do. Um, and, well, I, uh, I yeah, you know, found a way to do that, and you know the, and so I did a little bit of math, and the equivalency of the how much they paid at the time was about thirty thousand dollars a year in today's terms, to come and work for Wright. Um, so instead of him paying you thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars a year uh, as an intern, you had you were paying him that amount of money to come and learn from the master. Um, and any couldn't happen today. But also on the flip side, it is happening today. Like, but in a much more diluted and bureaucratic way. Like, how is that any different from school? And like a thought that was spiraling is like today, our society. It's all about accreditation. It's all about the public institution's approval of. Whatever. I mean, also to build something, you need that public institution's approval, you know. Um, and it, I don't know, it's just it was, seeing, it, it was an un, it was a non-accredited degree. I mean, they, they offered no degree, offered no degrees. It was. But also, this was a century ago when, who cared about a degree? Like it didn't quite matter until a few decades after. I mean, it was still like. Like yes, licensing was was in place, but the real formal education, especially all of the generations leading up to that, it was way more experiential and and apprentice like. And I mean, I am like I really appreciate education, but going through the current system we have. I mean, I would have rather paid with that to go learn from I don't know, Cool House or Bjork or so, or someone you know and um. You know, but I mean, I, I think you get the point, and I think we sh- should have a discussion on Bjork sometime because um, I don't know he he's just so. 
popular, but also regimen. I don't know. Um, he's enigmatic. I would he's say that. He's praised in school, though. Or he's praised and bashed in school, which is interesting. He should be bashed in school for once. He's praised quite a bit. I could argue that uh, one professor was basically just trying to <laughs> copy him. Um, he, 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 he even like stole the slogan. I, I think the one he st- stole was like architects think big or something like that. And I'm just like, you can't like, like I'm pretty sure his, his slogan is think big. Like you can't like just s- snag it. And I don't know. And, and that's back to who are you trying to be? Are you trying to be s- someone else based on their accolades that you perceive or can you truly find yourself in what your strengths and weaknesses are and also enjoyment because no one wants to live a life at a job you get no fulfillment out of whatsoever and it's just a means it, it's repeating all over again but I would argue Keating was more than just a means to an end he did get something out of it but he was just chasing the fame and the glory and what other what, what he thought other people thought of him and and i'm like you can't be playing that game at all it, it's it, and you can't you lose your soul in in, in it and I, I think a lot of it comes down to being able to recognize and be aware when you are influenced by other voices because like that isn't always a bad thing you know like no absolutely not i mean you've heard me say it a million times there's nothing new under the sun you you are truly influenced by the things that are around you by the things that other people do the things that 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 people think things that people write um and but you have to find your own voice in how you reinterpret them and and that's what separates the true innovators from the the followers. And especially t- today, like I don't think we need some grandiose, brand new style theme. Like I think we need to distill it more and and harness the technology we do have of today. And instead of trying, because also like in being on the job. Parkit. I'm researching just so many firms and I'm seeing so many websites and a lot of the a lot of them do high-end residential homes that all look the same but they all look like terrible modernism like it's, it's just like wood paneling and white paint and I'm, and and, I'm, and like it isn't really doing anything besides looking expensive or looking nice and I'm just like like at one point, if you're enjoying it completely, I can applaud you. But I think we all should be in that critic of others, in that so we can be an accurate critic of ourselves, but in that a non-judgmental one, just one that produces awareness and can call out, "Oh, I'm actually copying that person," because it was interesting. Like in school, you would see two people present sometimes. They're friends and they sit next to each other and they're presenting the same project. 
and I'm, I, but it's two different projects, you know, and and they're just each seeing what the other one is doing and and assuming because they're doing something they're doing it correct. When part of that statement is true, like you like that is like that first step, like actually producing versus being c- caught up here and and that parallels and truly being paralyzed. Um, but also if you're just trying to copy them you're both going to be slaughtered like i've seen professors call students out over two projects looking exactly the same yeah absolutely and that doesn't happen by coincidence i mean it happened in um my senior uh uh, um uh uh, in my last semester we were uh doing a house and the program required a pool and everyone put the pool basically in the exact same spot at the end of this very long and and um short site and all of these buildings ended up looking kind of exactly the same i mean it was also like a three-week project so it was quick but still like even like mine looked like others and I'm, i'm just like this is hurting me that these look so alike just like we should have radically different stuff out here like like are we really trying anything but all of us were peeking over each other's shoulders so i felt i was able to break away from that for the final project and try and not intentionally do something different but try and find what's the soul of my project what is the point what's the expression what's the idea and that goes back to, you know, again, basic design principles, which is uh, creating a party that has a story that, ha- you know, you know you're, you're shaping um, a diagram around an idea instead of it being around forms. You're trying to address it intellectually instead of formally. And the reason why a lot of buildings look the same is because they're, um, they're you know, bastardizing and copying other forms and other you know, formal approaches to things instead of having a larger idea about what this building should be or what that that element, you know, could be from an intellectual point of view. So there always has to be a story uh, that, that accompanies the, the party. And, I, I mean, like, how does an absolute correlation between second-handing or second hander people and second hander buildings it's the appearance of success is it okay everyone talks about the seagrams let's 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 have a building that looks just like it but it's actually not like it at all because it's 10 times as big and there's no plaza and there's no anything and it's and those sorts of oh someone else said that's good so i'll try and do that right exactly like you aren't ever going to get there first of all and it's already been done like one thought i had during the peace discussion of tonight was well after he to the seagrams if he got another commission like that he wouldn't have done the exact same thing again he would have continued to push it and evolve and try something a little different and he probably wouldn't have had philip johnson either so like it probably well, didn't build similar to it in chicago um why got the sequence building to begin with yeah uh, and 
and and and yet the sequence building, I mean, both the uh, the Lakes Drive project in Chicago, uh, you know, have a lot of aesthetic similarities to them, but they're very very different buildings. They're very different sculpturally. They're very different from a plaza point of view. Um, and and so yes, I mean, even though he applied some of the same aesthetic principles to it, they were very they were crafted and thought about very differently. Um, and so yes, absolutely, each each building is unique to its site. It's unique to its um, you know, region. It's unique to its you know it it is grounded to the place in which it's it's built. Um, then why am I living in a building that looks like all of the other buildings on my street? Like, <laughs> that's the part that just crushes me. And like, I, I, I would like it's, to. And it's easy. It's the thing that you know. Uh, it, you know, the the difference between you know architecture and development is is. Um, it's it's the financial reward of doing something that you've done before. You know, there's an architecture firm, uh, and I won't name them, but um, has that's done a lot of student housing projects uh, in in South Florida, and they literally use the same floor plan and the same elevations in every single project, and because it's uh, they make money that way. Uh, it's expedient and it's something that's a known quantity, and it was successful in one place. And they believe that it can be, you know, successful in another place, um, and, uh, and and that's, in my opinion, not the way to do architecture. Um, each building should be unique. Each building should, you know, respond to the site. Each building should have a different characteristic um, uh, to it because of all of the other um, you know, demands on it. Um, if you built it next door to it, it might have some similarities to the first one. But if you built it, you know, 20 miles away, it should look very different. And in that, it's, it seems also that the modernist or a core tenet of the modernist movement was affordable construction, not just affordable housing. That's obviously important. But after two world wars, they had a lot of rebuilding to do, and they... They only had so much money in some parts of these very, very torn up places. And it, it was an interesting point in the book when they pointed out how Philip Johnson really ignored that fact completely, and, and which is also why the Tuchenhot house was probably his, his favorite or what he revered as the pinnacle of modernism. And right. I mean, that mansion and versus trying to think of how can we either mitigate some costs or design in like a cost first way or at least a cost uh, in heavy consideration versus oh this is an amazing space with vaulted whatever it's super expensive but <laughs> It should be married to how are we going to actually get a built versus, okay, here's my design. I need so many two-by-fours or whatever, you know. Well, this is a great segue to our next conversation, uh, which mm -hmm. is about Gropius and his passion for 
building for the masses. Um, yeah. So we can talk about that in our next one. But this has been a good, com- good a good conversation. Agreed. It's flowed off track and on track, and I've um and and sort of because you can really compare these two on an abstract level to a lot of different things, fictional and and on and and this next discussion is all about rationalism and pretty the in, the heavy intellectual side of our right. culture. Yeah. So, um. Again, thank you. Thank you. I always enjoy these a lot. So um, we could talk pretty soon. And um, so have a right. great night. All right. Love you. Bye. Frank Lloyd Wright, having not written about his work, I would have, but he was extremely um, elucidating when he was on stage and, and, and people marveled at the things that he said and he would carry on a conversation and talk about architecture for long periods of time where, you know, where people's mouths were agape and, and uh, their jaws were dropped because of not only the uh, profanity that he, he used, but also, uh, you know, the insight that he provided uh, in talking about American architecture, talking about architecture in general. Uh, it would be, you know, we have really nice, um, you know, writings by, uh, you know, I, I've got a couple of books. One is, uh, you know, you know, Khan's Conversations with Students. I have another uh, uh, nice book uh, on um, Ram Coolhouse's Conversations with Students. Uh, it would have been, you know, I'm hoping that someday, you know, maybe somebody will, will uh, have uh, recorded, you know, these, some of these uh, interviews and uh, for Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright in, in uh, you know, a small book that talks about his discussions about architecture, because uh, when you read about them in a book like this, it, it almost leaves you wanting to say, well, what did he actually say on stage? You know, what, what were the words that he used? Because the discussion, you know, was was recorded as as profound and insightful and, and thoughtful and unique and, um, you know, and, and in some ways attacking, you know, this and that. Uh, and, you know, you, you just wanted to know what what, what he said, what, what were his words. And I, what are those specifics? What's the rhetoric, the jargon, the personality? Right, exactly. And, and a part of that, I think, has to do with the generational aspect as well, because um, recording things in such detail, at least early on, for him, and I'm curious. I haven't looked into him much, but especially his apprentices at Taliesin. Um, I'm blanking on a few of the names of these standouts, but I'm curious what they would have to say on working for him. I, I mean, it, I'm kind of um hot and cold on. Taliesin is, and I think it was a great business exploit during the Great Depression when he couldn't get a ton of work to get students to pay him thousands of 
dollars to come to his property and, and then spend half the time at best um working in as construction or farming or doing work of the land rather than actual architectural or i mean it, it was also in that kind of like a karate kid biagi thing also of hey you have to know and experience life it can't just explicitly be up here or something learned and it seems also that the great aspect of of uh taliesin is that he was able to do that mentorship in some way but like there's a reason there aren't a ton of copiers of Franklin Wright, and like th there's a reason. Well, to tell you really close. Well, you know, well I, I mean, Dallas is actually re replete with a number of copies of, or a number of students from Taliesin that built in that same mm -hmm. uh, prairie style. Um, and uh, I, I just know that about Dallas. I'm sure there are others in Chicago. You know, certainly there are yeah. in Phoenix. Um, but, um, you know, I think the difference there is that, uh, you know, Wright demanded, you know, absolute um, uh, adherence to, you know, his ideology, his forms, his focus, instead of, and so if you compare that, and we'll talk about this the next time when we talk about Gropius, um, you know, Franklin Wright demanded adherence to a singular philosophy, which was his, whereas Gropius, you know, um, uh, both at Bauhaus and also when he came to Harvard, uh, it was to encourage students to follow, you know, their own path under their own terms, which is uh, a pedagogy that still exists today in, in most architecture schools. The professor is not to, there to mandate it should look like this or that with the exception of maybe McDonald and some others, but, um, but um, you know, I, I'm here to, uh, you know, as a professor, I'm here to share with you some ideas about uh, architecture and design and, and design philosophy and, and focus and, and, uh, and, but yet you have to discover your path yourself. And there's a, a clear distinction between me, between Gropius's pedagogy in, the, in, in what existed at Taliesin. Um, and again, that's something we can talk about the next time. So. Yeah, and it seems that especially oh, in that one topic would be, was Franklin Wright really mentoring or exploiting or using? He was totally exploiting. I mean, there's no question about it. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, the fact that he came up with uh, an ingenious business model. Um, yeah, so there's only other one architect that I know of that did that, and that, and I shared that with the students, and that's Paolo Soleri um, in, in his, um, you know, designs in the desert, where, you know, students had to pay him to come out there and help him, you know, construct uh, his ideas. And, um, you know, can you imagine today that happening uh, again if you if you frame this in the terms of the the, the course description which is the architect in contemporary society 
that can exist today. You already have people like Stephen Hole who uh, brought on interns and wouldn't pay them. You know, they were non-paid interns, and he's, you know, facing, you know, massive, um, uh, not retribution, but massive uh, uh, pushback by the architectural community for exploiting, you know, people, uh, exploiting students, exploiting, you know, people in a way that just isn't right. It just isn't correct. It, it isn't the uh, the proper thing to do. Um, and well, I, I, I yeah, mm-hmm. you know, found a way to do that. And, you know, the, and so I did a little bit of math and the equivalency of the, how much they paid at the time was about $30,000 a year in today's terms to come and work for right. Um, so instead of him paying you 30, 40, $50,000 a year, uh, as an intern, you had, you were paying him that amount of money to come and learn from the master. Um, and any, couldn't happen today. But also on the flip side, it is happening today. Like, but in a much more diluted and bureaucratic way, like, how is that any different from school? And like a thought that was spiraling is like today, our society, it's all about accreditation. It's all about the public institution's approval of whatever. I mean, also to build something, you need that public institution's approval, you know? Um, and it, I don't know, it's just... It was, seemed, it, it was an un- it's a non-accredited degree. I mean, they offered no degree, offered no degrees. It was. But also, this was a century ago when, who cared about a degree? Like it didn't quite matter until a few decades after. I mean, it was still like, like just licensing was was in place, but. The real formal education, especially all of the generations leading up to that, it was way more experiential and and apprentice like. And I mean, I am like I, I really appreciate education, but going through the current system we have, I mean, I would have rather paid would that to go learn from I don't know, cool house or. York or so, or someone you know and um you know but I mean I, I think you get the point and I think we sh- should have a discussion on York sometime because um I don't know he he's just so popular but also regiment I don't know um he's enigmatic. I would say he's that. praised in school, though. Well, he's praised and bashed in school, which is interesting. He should be bashed in school. He's praised quite a bit. I would argue that uh, one professor was basically just trying to <laughs> copy him. Um, he, 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 he even like stole the slogan. I, I think the one he's stole was like architects think big or something like that and i'm just like you can't like like i'm pretty sure his, his slogan is think big like you can't like just snag it and i don't and and that's back to who are you trying to be are you trying to be someone else based on their accolades that you perceive or are you 
can you truly find yourself in what your strengths and weaknesses are and also enjoyment because no one wants to live a life at a job you get no fulfillment out of whatsoever and it's just a means it, it's repeating all over again but I would argue Keating was more than just a means to an end. He did get something out of it, but he was just chasing the fame and the glory and what other what he thought other people thought of him. And and I'm like, you can't be playing that game at all. It, it's it, no, you can't. You lose your soul in in, in it. And I, I think a lot of it comes down to being able to recognize and be aware when you are influenced by other voices because like that isn't always a bad thing you know like no absolutely not i mean you've heard me say it a million times there's nothing new under the sun you you are truly influenced by the things that are around you by the things that other people do the things that 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 people think the things that people write um and but you have to find your own voice in how you reinterpret them and and that's what separates the true innovators from the the followers and especially t- today like i don't think we need some grandiose brand new style theme like i think we need to distill it more and and harness the technology we do have of today and, instead of trying cuz also like in being on the job market, I'm researching just so many firms and I'm seeing so many websites and a lot of the, a lot of them do high-end residential homes that all look the same, but they all look like terrible modernism. Like it's, it's just like wood paneling and white paint. And, I'm, and, and, I'm, and I, like it, it isn't really doing anything besides looking expensive or looking Ties and I'm just like, like at one point, if you're enjoying it completely, I can applaud you. But I think we all should be in that critic of others, in that so we can be an accurate critic of ourselves, but in that a non-judgmental one, just one that produces awareness and can call out, oh, I'm actually copying that person. Because it was interesting, like in school, you would see two people present sometimes their friends and they sit next to each other and they're presenting the same project. You know, but it's two different projects, you know, and and they're just each seeing what the other one is doing and, and assuming because they're doing something, they're doing it correct. When part of that statement is true, like you like that is like that first step, like actually producing versus being caught up here and and that parallel is truly being paralyzed um but also if you're just trying to copy them you're both going to be slaughtered like i've seen professors call students out over two projects looking exactly the same yeah absolutely and that doesn't happen by coincidence i mean it happened in um my senior uh um uh uh, in my last semester or we were uh, doing a house and the 
program required a pool, and everyone put the pool basically in the exact same spot at the end of this very long and and um short site, and it, all of these buildings ended up looking kind of exactly the same. I mean, it was also like a three week project, so it was quick, but still, like even like mine look like others, and I'm I'm just like this is hurting me that these look so alike just like we should have radically different stuff out here like like are we really trying anything but all of us were peeking over each other's sh shoulders so i felt i was able to break away from that for the final project and try and not intentionally do something different but try and find what's the soul of my project what is the point what's the expression what's the idea and well, that, that goes back to, you know, again, basic design principles, which is uh, creating a partee that has a story that, ha you know, you know you're, you're shaping um, a diagram around an idea instead of it being around forms. You're trying to address it intellectually instead of formally. And the reason why a lot of buildings look the same is because they're, um, they're you know, bastardizing and copying other forms and other you know, formal approaches to things instead of having a larger idea about what this building should be or what that that element, you know, could be from an intellectual point of view. So there always has to be a story uh, that, that accompanies the, the party. And, I, I mean, like, how does an absolute correlation between second-handing or second hander people and second hander buildings it's the appearance of success is it okay everyone talks about the seagrams let's 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 have a building that looks just like it but it's actually not like it at all because it's 10 times as big and there's no plaza and there's no anything and it's and those sorts of oh someone else said that's good so i'll try and do that right exactly like, like you aren't ever going to get there first of all and it's already been done like one thought i had during the peace discussion of tonight was well after he to the seagrams if he got another commission like that he wouldn't have done the exact same thing again. He would have continued to push it and evolve and try something a little different. And he probably wouldn't have had Philip Johnson either. So, like, it probably well, didn't build similar to it in Chicago. Um, why got the Seagram's building to begin with? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and yet the Seagram's building, I mean, both the, uh, the Lake Drive project in Chicago, uh, you know, have a lot of aesthetic similarities to them but they're very very different buildings they're very different sculpturally they're very different from a plaza point of view um and and so yes i mean even though he applied some of the same aesthetic principles to it they were very they were crafted and thought about very differently um and so yes absolutely each each building is unique to its site it's unique to its um you know region it's unique to its you know it, it is grounded to the place in which it's it's built. Then um, why am I living in a building that looks like all of the other buildings on my street? It's like, <laughs> that's the part that just crushes me. And 
Like I, I, I would like to. And it's easy. It's the thing that you know. Uh, it, you know, the, the difference between you know architecture and development is is um, it, it, it's it's the financial reward of doing something that you've done before. You know, there's an architecture firm, uh, and I won't name them, but um, has that's done a lot of student housing projects uh, in in South Florida, and they literally use the same floor plan and the same elevations in every single project, and because it's uh, they make money that way, uh, it's expedient and it's something that's a known quantity, and it was successful in one place, and they believe that it can be you know successful in another place. Um, and, uh, and and that's, in my opinion, not the way to do architecture. Um, each building should be unique. Each building should, you know, respond to the site. Each building should have a different characteristic um, uh, to it because of all of the other um, you know, demands on it. Um, if you built it next door to it, it might, it might have some similarities to the first one, but if you built it, you know, 20 miles away, it should look very different. And in that, it's, it seems also that the modernist or a core tenet of the modernist movement was affordable construction, not just affordable housing. That's obviously important. But after two world wars, they had a lot of rebuilding to do, and they they only had so much money in some parts of these very very torn up places and it, it was an interesting point in the book when they pointed out how Philip Johnson really ignored that fact completely and, and which is also why the Tuchenhot house was probably his, his favorite or what he revered as the pinnacle of modernism and right. I mean that mansion and versus trying to think of how can we either mitigate some costs or, or design in like a cost first way or at least a cost uh, in heavy consideration versus oh this is an amazing space with vaulted whatever it's super expensive but it should be married to how are we going to actually get a built versus okay here's my design i need so many two by fours or whatever you know well this is a great segue to our next conversation uh which mm -hmm. is about gropius and his passion for building for the masses um, yeah so we can talk about that in our next one but this has been a good good a good conversation uh, agreed it's flowed off track and on track and i've um and, and Enjoyed it because you can really compare these two on an abstract level to a lot of different things, fictional ends and thought. And, and this next discussion is all about rationalism and pretty the, the heavy intellectual side of our right. culture. Yes. So, um, again, thank you. Thank you. I always enjoy these a lot. So, um, who can talk? pretty soon and um so have a right. great night all right love you